Hi, everyone. Welcome to the new writing series. Good to see you all. I, I know we're short on seats, um, and uh, we could we can fill in more of this space up here. We can get really up and close and personal with the podium. I know uh, Chiwan wouldn't mind, so uh, feel free to come up this way. Don't be shy. Um, thanks so much for being here at the new writing series, our last actual event of this particular fall quarter. Before we get started, can we turn our phones off? I've got to do it also here. I'm going to turn it off. Maybe we could do it together. Thanks so much. So, as I said, this is the, our last event of this uh, fall quarter, uh, but it's not our last event of the year. In fact, we have some really great uh, guests and uh, readers coming uh, in the subsequent quarters. We've got Matthias Felina, we've got Christy C. Road, we've got Lily Wong and Melissa Banales, we have uh, Brian Evanson. Uh, we have Laylee Long Soldier coming in the spring in May. So please uh, look out for schedules. They're coming your way. Please friend us on Facebook. Please look us up for us on Facebook. And also find our website on the literature website. Uh, and we'll be posting those schedules uh, for the upcoming quarter. Um, as always, we want to uh, do some shout-outs and thanks to uh, the administration, Danica Chan and Derek, Derek Chin, without their help. This series really couldn't happen. We also want to thank our, the director of our MFA program, Anna Joy Springer. Um, and uh, we also want to thank the new writing series assistants, Aiden LaRue and Evelyn Murdoch. All right. And again, as yeah, absolutely. And those uh, of you standing, we do have room. We could come up to the front here. Uh, someone could sit on this. Um, um, uh, what is that? A bank? What is that? What is in there? Black box? Okay, the tech, right? Yes, yes. I, th I was thinking like a black box, like in an, in, in an aeroplane, you know, like if this, this whole thing goes down. Uh, you could sit on Perfect, Professor Wong sitting on the, on the black box. So welcome. Come on in and join us. Um, I want to bring up uh, two of our fabulous uh, graduate students in the MFA program, Zachary and Jidi, who are now going to introduce Chi Wan Choi. This is not a memory. This is only a story. This is when I am one. As a woman married to a family of men. 1980 and the beginning of loss. Across my brain, behind my eyes. And you were what I imagine proud. This is not a memory, but it's blindness. Temporary except here, where it's permanent like all the things we lose like all the things we try to erase. The thing inside that they tried to take away. 
I hear the words spoken by every voice I have known. It's Monday morning, and Dad and I are together. Back to the hand that becomes more familiar. Fingertips grazing skin, sun bright on her curved hip. There is no moon, only this body. It breaks in ways that don't matter, but you still hold the fragments in your hands. Fuck you, we yell. In my dreams, I caught the arrows and other storms, hoping to find her excels. I make streetlights appear on the ceiling until we can no longer be the same. I tumble into the sand. He pulls away toward the finish line, and he stops to tell me to keep running. And you find it, while burning, the house you were searching for. She is not okay. <coughs> in addition to being an accomplished poet, uh, our reader this evening, Chiwan Choi, is an organizer of literary events. Uh, for instance, um, the 90 by 90 or 9490 festival in LA, which is 90 readings over 90 days. That's 90 readings a day for 90 days. If my calculations are correct, that's 8,100 readings in three months. 3.75 readings every hour. <laughs> so he's involved. <laughs> Uh, a friend lent me an anecdote about Tuan Choi that illustrates him as a community creator and member. Um, often at readings that are not at institutions of higher learning, there's alcohol. Um, and. <laughs> And at one such reading, um, not organized by our reader this evening, but organized by somebody else, there were various appropriative performances. For instance, who would find it all right if I were standing up here in a full indigenous headdress? Nobody. Okay. Things like that happened. <coughs> And my friend felt the need to speak up. This friend is a vigilante. Mm -hmm. And as this friend began to confront the organizers of this event, who had effectively curated an embarrassment, Chuan approached my friend and said, this isn't the space. Not now. Write it. Fight where you can. And Tuan, my friend says, is always fighting, is always working to create community, is always working to create 
just scenarios where communication can happen and be safe and spread. In the same way that I was lent this anecdote so that I can come up here and look as if I know what I'm speaking about, communication creates community. Um, and that is one of his many uh, graces. Tiwan Choi is the author of The Flood, Abductions, and The Yellow House. His work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Entropy, Spiral Arb, and the anthologies called Serpent, ATTN, and the upcoming uh, Resist, Munch, Obey, Litter. He also wrote, presented, and destroyed the novel Ghostmaker throughout the, co the course of 2015. T1 is a partner at Rid Large Press, a downtown Los Angeles-based indie publisher, focused on focus on using literary arts to resist, disrupt, and transgress. Please welcome to one toy. Um, oh, shit. <laughs> There's a lot of people. Um, You can come up here. <laughs> you can come stay here. Um, <laughs> um, thank you, Brandon, for inviting me. Uh, I think last time I saw you was at Salma Sharif's book release. Yeah. Um, luckily, like I, I get, flew across the country just to see Salma's read that night, and then Brandon was there, so we went to this cool place called. <laughs> the Dresden Room, if you're ever in L.A., go there. Um, anyways, I got distracted by drugs. <laughs> um, I'll be reading a few pieces from Abductions before I get into uh, reading from The Yellow House. And the reason being, I wrote The Yellow House as sort of a sequel to Abductions. Um, and I'm working on the third part of this three-book sequence right now called My Name is Wolf. Um, abductions, I wrote uh, after my wife and I had a miscarriage. I didn't know how to write about it. Um, and I just started obsessing about alien abductions. Um, there's these great South American UFO blogs, if you check it out. Um, and I just read it like every day. Um, and I started thinking about our miscarriage as an alien abduction mythology. So I started writing poems that way. And when I started doing that, it also helped me approach my life as an immigrant, my family's life as an immigrant, as, a, as an alien abduction story. Uh, especially when we're kids and our parents throw us on a plane and we have no idea where we're going. We land. Everybody looks weird, like white people show up. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, they're speaking all weird. So it's, it's sort of that way. Um, with the yellow house, even though this, I'm not taking that uh, that exact structure, the storylines continue. And the yellow house was a book-length piece. I started writing very disjointed in a very disjointed way. And I think even at the end, it ended up being pretty disjointed. Um, and um, yeah, and the third 
book is more of a narrative long poem that I'm writing. Um, so I'll read a couple of pieces from Abductions and then read some stuff from The Yellow House. And, um, and everybody could hear me, right? Because these mics don't work as mics, they only record. So, okay. Um, and then we'll just talk. I love talking. <laughs> and we'll talk about anything you want. Um, Fishing. We left our parents at the pier because it was freezing, but they kept at it, mom laughing each time she felt the line bite into her finger. They were using fishing lines wrapped around empty Coke cans because we hadn't gone to Sears yet to buy our first fishing poles. Margaret and I were both 11 years old. We didn't care about fish. I didn't even like eating fish. All we knew was that we could hear our teeth chatter out there and all that bait cutting was nasty. We crawled into the back of the blue Toyota pickup, hoping the Vista camper shell would shield us from the cold. I started staring at her cleavage. I couldn't help it. It was like a tracking beam. Her breasts were already legendary at school and the boys gave me a hard time because they knew she and I were next door neighbors. She looked up at me and wrapped her arms around her chest to cover herself. This is what she did every day to shield herself from all the men, her dad, her brother, neighbors, and teachers. And now me, this boy trembling next to her. And I tried to make conversation about bisons and other dead things, telling her about the ghost in my childhood home who used to sit on the steps and about the UFOs in Paraguay and the artifacts my father kept inside the piano chair. Then she smiled and moved her, leg, her left leg over until it touched my right, her arms falling back to her sides, turning any words I had left to speak into sounds I couldn't spell. What I wanted to write during lunch all through senior year in high school, I sat alone in the hallway, empty except an occasional student walking past and trying hard not to stare at me, and a Japanese man who taught Karl Marx every year, waiting for his class by the door. One morning while hanging out with the guys I'd grown up with since fifth grade, listening to them complain about bitches who wouldn't suck dick and their moms not giving them money, and comparing new Kenwood pullouts that they stole. I stood up, told them how much I hated them all, how I was never going to sit there with them again. It was some serious teen angst melodrama, but I just couldn't do it anymore. Listen to them droning on about their simple, uninterrupted lives, while I had to remain silent, tell nobody about us, about the scars that appear on my body that doctors can't explain. If I was to be silent, I wanted to be alone. At nights, I sat in my room, staring at the stains and cracks on the ceiling, my brother's bed next to mine, empty for the past year, bracing for the next time, each night bracing for the next time. 
until one night I looked in the closet and found my brother's old typewriter that he'd bought for the sole purpose of writing a paper on the human comedy. And I started to write too, more than mere paper, to turn my life into evidence of the things I held in my skin, falling asleep each night with my face on the keys of the Sears electric typewriter, my room smelling of the markers I was sniffing, blood stains on the wall by the door around the light switch, reminders of the desperation and darkness, the sheet of paper curled around the drum of the machine, praying for words to appear. As downstairs, my mother continued to knit another blanket to cover the parts of our family that were unprotected, father's blood, her own cold aging legs. Mercy and Water. For the past year, more than ever, I've been trying to run away from all things in my life, wanting to create reasons that can explain the way my body has failed me. Years ago, I ran all the way to New York, ending up drunk on St. Mark's with a new tribe, then leaving these strangers in bed to walk in the rain on 32nd and 3rd, heading uptown, then down, to that room where I left my bag hanging on a metal chair. Surprised at the city, how it keeps itself from getting lost in the dawn breaking between these two branches, twisted and skinny, pointing toward and away. Before that was a house in the Palisades, and another by the beach, that one still haunted by the owner's dead love. In dark West LA bars with sticky, sticky red boots, and blind promises exchanged through touch. It's here again, and I can't quite handle the slow way in which we are dying. My family propped up by secrets and scar tissues. A year-long charade of doctors and tests that ends with me sitting on an examining table. The man with the Polish name telling me that he doesn't know why bodies like mine stop. I can't explain it, he says. And it leads to this. Walking out of another bar into the night that is almost morning, I put my hands in the pockets of a $10 coat bought at a second-hand store on La Brea, unable to tell the time or the day, how the past year has blurred into an endless moment of regretting. But the feet start to move faster without thought, the memories and the body taking over, mercy and water drops on the curve of a side mirror the night and some path toward that thing we call familiar, a permanent forgiveness like concrete and a tongue behind your ear, wanting me to get there in time, to see her standing in front of the vanity, rubbing scentless lotion into her bare shoulders, her speckled skin illuminated by a small dim lamp we found on the street. Her journey. This was the last piece I read from abductions before. Her journey. At the emergency room, they kept using the word spontaneous. And as I held her hand, trying to stop myself from shaking, I almost told her everything. I got as far as saying that I was to blame and staring at the floor. But she says I was being ridiculous, that these things couldn't be my fault. 
as my fingers gripped the steering wheel of our car that wouldn't move in the hospital garage, calling my mother to tell her and listening to her say nothing back. It began with her as the war broke out in Korea, the abductions. She first saw the lights above her as she hid in a rowboat, lying still and quiet on her back, smiling at the way the colors in the sky moved. And days later, when her father tied her to a chair in the back room because he had to save his family from the communist invasion and one more girl was too much of a burden, he told her to be quiet, but she wouldn't. She screamed and she cried there alone. They came, the ones from the lights in the sky, untying her and taking her over the ocean. Dad says it started for him around the same time during the war that divided our homeland. His father, my grandpa, the one with the belly, and the first one of us that made contact. How he tried to buy time for his family with a handshake deal, while my father, his second son, carried his little sister across the border in the night to hide from the lights above. Sometimes I hear him angry that we have been stuck in this life of running, of hiding in the jungle in Paraguay as the invisible dragons circle the air above Chile, of accepting our ability to sacrifice friends and lovers to save ourselves. It's strange. The first they told me this was on Gramercy Drive, the living room with the gray carpet of Unit 6, 950 Gramercy Drive. My parents sitting on the couch, how he leaned forward and tapped mindlessly on the coffee table with his paint cake fingers while my mother started adding the pink yarn to the blanket. Standing in front of them with my arms straight down to my sides as he said, Son, in this life, you can't have friends because you will have to lose them. He never warned me about what happens to our children, how sometimes they are taken before we can even know their skin, or maybe I just hoped it would be different for mine. It's been over two years now since she's been gone, taken on her journey from Judy's womb, spontaneous. But last night she was here. I rolled over onto my left and in my half-sleep saw her standing five feet away. She had grown in a pale dress and boots, a jacket hugging tight around her shoulders. She looked to be around 10 years old. And in that moment, I couldn't remember how long ago was that day that I could never escape. She smiled, standing in a beam of light, her hand lifting into the air to say hello, to say stop, to say stay. And I bolted up waking up screaming, hand reaching out across my wife's body to the light that filtered in through the window. Judy, startled, wrapping her arms around me through instinct as I began to wail at the fading light, telling her that I thought I heard our baby say goodbye. Um... The yellow house, uh, I usually, when I write, start with the space and um, abductions was sort of the odd way an emergency room looks, if you've ever been in one. Um, sort of all the weird metal and the light. Is, is kind of, um, 
And with the yellow house, obviously, it was the yellow house. And um, I started writing a lot of it as just Facebook statuses on, um, as I was, because I move a lot and I lose all my notebooks. So I figured <laughs> if I write it into Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg will keep it safe for me. <laughs> I could just, even if I lose my computer, I'll just get a new one. It will be there, like magic. Um, so when I started writing it, I wrote it all with, with titles at first, but as I was putting the book together, I deleted all the titles because it felt more like one um, story. Um, anyway, so obviously I won't be reading the whole book, but I'll, I'll skip around a bit in sequence, and um, yeah, it'll be good. <laughs> um, <laughs> the Yellow House. I chose poetry over honesty, then lived this unremarkable life. While my parents were gone, I hid in the bush in front of our house, while the other boys lured all the stray dogs up our driveway and into our backyard. When there were enough of the dogs, of us, we chased them out, and I jumped out of the bush with a broomstick and swung it at the dog's legs, tripping them, making them fly, tumble, break down the steep driveway. I stood there and watched as the dogs lifted themselves up, whimpering, frightened, and limped and ran away. I was nine, and there was something that I wanted, and it was growing inside of me, and there was nothing I could do to stop. Everything that falls into place, like water on skin. I breathe in the space, in the things. You say, oh, I, a small hand floating through the air like longing. We touch down on U.S. soil. We are taken to Santa Monica Beach. I don't remember having seen the ocean before. There is a touch of sand at the bottom of my feet. I look up at the sun, and suddenly I can't remember my name. A hand pulls at my arm. This is skin on my skin. He wants me to race against him. I tumble into, that, into the sand. He pulls away toward the finish line and stops to tell me to keep running. But I don't rise into the air. Instead, watch him cry as he promises to make me whole. We stood out in the front yard. I stared at the giant anthill. In the center divider of our street, he looked up at the sky and put his hand on my shoulder. I turned and tilted my head to face him. This is what I want for you, he said to learn to stand in the light and see the storm. He painted the house yellow. His son called it canary yellow. The boy may have been right. In that house, they were going to begin a new life. They planted roses in the front yard. His wife planted poppy and told funny stories about opium. In that house, he started to heal although he had to sell his youth to the ghost in the hallway. In that house, his wife drank her first beer. 
In that canary yellow house, his son grew up until his bones started to hurt. In that house, the dogs barked until they died. In that house, he thanked God until his son put on his shoes and left. It was yellow, canary yellow in the sun. Last night, I heard the guitar again. I was asleep. There was pain in my hand to remind me. In the melody, the breaking was faint, but it was there like this love between a dragonfly and an osprey. As I often do, I cried in the dark, once again close to learning my name. In the morning, there was a humming from my lips, how I want to forget, clips of a scene too short to be recorded. This, this makes little sense, but I am alone heading west, squinting at the sun. My lips are still rough on the burn of the soup in the small red pot. Fracture, that's the word I embrace as night falls, hoping this is how life begins, full of memories that wrap fingers around ribs. I count light posts in yellow houses as the song enters its third minute. For the next 10 seconds, there will be no words. In a yellow house, she listened to Mahalia Jackson while stitching zippers on the back of black skirts. She sometimes appears when I am staring at the ceiling. Her face, it is full of curiosity. One day, she said, I will learn as you become. Here is the world. Here is something else like a broken chopstick. A photo of him standing by a river, a satchel of arrows on his back, like a mountain crumbling of loneliness. I can't remember the last time my mother told me that she was praying for our baby to be returned. Faith. It was always her faith. Tonight she sits across me to watch me eat the soup she has heated up. My father is on the couch, his hands resting on his belly. Sounds of guns and explosions coming from the TV in front of him. There isn't room enough in prayer to save both worlds, so she chooses him instead. And it's no longer Jesus. Her faith directs her to me. She tells me what she wants for Dad's 80th birthday, a trip somewhere they haven't seen. New Zealand, she says. And I nod because I don't know how to be God. And she loses the words of scripture when he is dying. I will promise her these things she asked for because we weren't born to love like this. We were meant to die in war or hunger or loneliness. I dream of this house crumbling to dust. God standing there ready to spit on it and begin to mold it again into a shape that holds more than absence. When I breathe, there is an echo, frequencies from a cry that let out five years ago or 45. I have started to hear my name again, and I smile and break and want to live, want to live, want to live even toward this inevitable end. 
I dream and forget the moment I wake, reaching toward her disappearance and the doors that have been left open, desperate for a breeze of summer. It's easy to blame the thing my skin wanted. You are the light, and you left the stubborn house a mess. But you will be back the way you came to me when I was a child. And I have to believe these things, because I don't know how, sh how else to push time forward. My father walks me to Jesus. He says, listen to what he tells you. And I wet my pants, but do as he says. He teaches me salvation only comes through pain. So I hammer at my bones in my sleep. The abductions then come until my language is lost. My mother tells me in silence, learn to dig the alien soil for sharp fragment sharp fragments of lives long gone and to carve into the surface of the world the thing inside that they tried to take away in this new world she says is no longer a heart it's called a poem and you are arsenal buried for the ones to come this is how you breathe this is how you break this is how you speak and become unstoppable in a stranger's music I heard my own voice in my voice I heard my brother giving me the keys to his Camaro in that night on that twisty part of sunset I heard my mother asking me to come home in that home I heard my father falling asleep on the couch in his dream, I heard a girl's hair flutter in the breeze. In the breeze, I saw my sister. I saw my sister in the breeze. We head for the waterfalls, falling in and out of sleep. I look out the window into the dark night and fall in love with everything I cannot see. I don't know what time it is, but it's late, and most everyone is asleep, or at least quiet. But my father stands up from his seat at the very front and turns to face the rest of us. He's a silhouette, a shadow that I can love. As his shadow arm raises and his shadow finger points toward a place that we are supposed to remember. The words I wanted to hear were, your body is a haunted house. So I could close the windows, keep the winter from my dead. All, all that is showing are bones that have frayed beyond explanation, wrapped in yellow skin, burnt on alien landscapes. Today I return to her apartment, the one with the crooked shelves and the small fan and ran my fingers through the dust on the windowsill to feel the burning of steel, taste the silence of the dying. I returned to look for myself on a bed long gone. This morning I had thought of something from that time in my life where I was afraid of discovering all that my heart wanted. Somewhere between those walls, I can still hear myself crying in my sleep, 
dreaming of something that I would lose before I woke. I want to come home to this again, days of being unmade instead of broken. This is terror and desperation. I am losing words like that faith that fled long ago. I need you. I need you to tell me how to say goodbye to the details that shift shapes like memories, like faces that lit up a dark March night in Los Angeles. 1980 and the beginning of loss and how all I wanted was a moment that would keep me still. She asked if it's possible to map a body, this body, and I think of the terrain that I can't escape, even if we cross the borders and oceans over and again. I think of the hollow in the cracked bones of countless quakes. She asked about the map that is my body, this body, and I look for the place where I begin, these eyes hanging like my twin stars above the mountains that burned or burned out before I even knew I was born. The wet street that runs through my elbow, heel that carries my brother who pedals away from me. The south, my knees swollen and pulsing, burning fires trailing down my feet. At the northern tip, the scar on my forehead left from the closing off of the blood inside, hiding the curse my father left for me before work. And at the end of a two-lane highway, too short to wrap around the life that begins, my hands, my hands, fists pounding on the metal slab until I can't feel their emptiness. She asks, is your body, this body, a map, cartographer? And I don't know how to reach for my heart, having forgotten long ago what you call that road you took to a place finally quiet enough to lose everything. That place that reminded you of home enough to make you run. How you still hold the soil from its ground under your nails, years and hours after you couldn't leave anymore. The language you began to utter in the womb to one day let you love and fear God hidden in the falling of a petal, like your future now burning toward its end. This is the language you lose, to speak words that you are never supposed to know, words that will go on to scar your tongue because your father believed in penance and he wanted you to be saved. You are now 46 and you are in ways still alive, but he hasn't read a single one of these sentences you've spoken it has been freedom to not be heard. It has been a death in silence. What was supposed to happen when by chance you found a house that had haunted your life, the house yellow in the sun you couldn't name? Enter, take space, live, and allow yourself to make plans? Or if you were meant to stand outside and watch it burn while you learn to pray in this forced language for the storm that will extinguish you? You are listening to the end of the new Frank Ocean album, and the music is what you always wish the end of your life to sound like. Not the words, because you've had too much of language that you don't belong to. Just the music, where the final breaths, final pages, final turns around the moon, the sun, around the fire we built together on the beach, around our dead, around our taken, 
around the bones that shiver at the touch of lips on bare shoulders, around the final wanting, around our baking, around our breaking, around our breaking. There is no moon, only this body, and it breaks in ways that don't matter. But you still hold the fragments in your hands. What would the people of science, the physicists and poets say about your voice that knows how to travel between two galaxies, between two universes, between two lives that can't hold space together like children in love? And if you are a star, and you are the light that I see through the din of aging neighbors and the relentless summer rain, how long ago did you expire? You make me believe that what was meant for us is this life of ghosts and traveling through time and to learn to long over and over. The abductions broke me, broke all of us, and taught us how much breathing is chained to loss how surviving is for fools who can't put down faith. Tonight the moon is the moon, and another cycle beginning. Here I am, supine, you dancing on the yellow walls that hold my bones inside, washing me with tears and blood while I learn again how to say thank you. And you make me want to hold the sky in my hands that are fracturing until I want to call it blue in the moment like this one, where my skin loses its boundaries and all I want is to live. The thing you didn't know is that they age even after they're gone. They find the sun of their own and run and fall and breathe, hold their hands against the current of a cold river. But for the first time you spoke the dark out loud. Walking through a department store, I saw a girl standing behind the counter selling something, jewelry perhaps. She had her head down, standing straight. I am standing in front of her. I say, you are beautiful. She says, you are beautiful too. In dreams, you can see a face through hair that hangs down in front of it, like childhood waterfalls. Even months later, you will remember remembering the light caught on her cheeks. Repeat the details to yourself while riding a bus to a smoky bar, how she must have been 15. Your wife's arm still wrapping around you as it did that night you dreamt, as your body shook to let out your cries, the tears that wouldn't stop, as you say, I remember it all. Only when it's dark, we can ask what is fragile. This bone in my right hand, this ankle that wants to turn, this wall on which I rest my hand is fragile, the way he holds his avocado sandwich with two hands covered in brown spots. How fragile is this word I place on this page only to delete it for its sound that will not conform. If I was fragile, if I could forever be in the process of breaking, would my hands be enough to catch salvation falling from the sparrow's impossible grasp? Daughter, I prayed instead when my body told me to run because my legs were breaking and I was afraid of the pain. But I was wrong and I lost you before the end of grace. 
I have replaced God with longing, and I am learning to speak to birds and the lavender to ask them to help me chart the stars. I started this story about the yellow house to tell you that there was a life I had wanted so badly. Then I thought, this is where I die, because that's what it means to want. I am told that there are other ways I can be a father. How do I tell them it was never about giving myself a name? I just wanted to speak yours. But what if I could be wrong one more time? And the yellow house is not my broken body, nor the hollow that holds me in burial. Daughter, what if my desire was always your way of guiding me to the place where you learned to cherish your life? Thank you. Any questions about anything? Poetry, basketball, <laughs> TV shows. Yes. My favorite sandwich? Oh, it's not the Pittsburgh sandwich that has French fries in it. Um, it's probably it's probably the sandwiches at Eastside Deli and Market in LA. It's like these Italian sandwiches. If you go to LA, don't go to uh, Philippe's and get French dip. <laughs> go to Eastside Cafe, Eastside Deli. Love Um, Real Large Press is a small press that my wife and I started in like 2008. Um, just because I had moved back from New York, back to LA where I grew up. Because I was like, New York kind of sucks. LA has the best writers. <laughs> <laughs> so, and there were all these writers, amazing writers that we thought should be published. So we started Real Large Press. And between the two of us, and we we named it Real Large Press because it was like, it was so silly, because it was just the two of us. <laughs> we could barely manage to like publish one book. And our first book was a, uh, a LA poet named Kim Calder, who I had known since she was like 18. I think, actually, yeah, yeah, she was like 17. Her license, her driver's license was suspended, and so I was driving her home. And she was an, this amazing poet, and I said, one day I want to publish your book. And 10 years later, I did. So that was like a... Um, anyways, we put out like one book at a time, and then um, we partnered with uh, an amazing guy named Peter Woods, who's in L.A. He'd been um, putting together music events for like 20 years, just experimental jazz mostly. So we just wanted to see how much noise the smallest press in the world can make. <laughs> well, yeah, we sort of, I didn't even know what real large meant. It was some lawyer term. But, <laughs> <laughs> but we're like, it has the word large in it, so let's do that. Uh, 
what we've been focusing on is oh, what happened is when it went. Sorry for the long story. What happened is, is what, uh, for one of the book releases, this uh, it was a poetry collection. We needed a venue to have it, so we rented a venue. Uh, it was a good turnout, sold books, but. I was so upset because by the end of the night, the person who made the most money was the venue owner. It's not the poet who worked on this book for 10 years, not us who published it, but the venue owner who lent us a space for two hours. I was like, this is not, we can't do this anymore. So we started really focusing on creating spaces, especially around LA, where people who don't have access to money or, or school even could, could have venues to present their work. Um, so, someone mentioned 90 for 90 earlier, and that's a, we've done it twice already. The math was a little wrong, <laughs> but basically it was one event a day for 90 consecutive days. Um, and, and we're like, that's the thing we're most proud of, because, um, like this summer, like over 90 events, we had about 3,000 to 4,000 people show up, about 300 presenters. I'd say it was like 90% POC. So if you're doing events in a, in a city like LA and it's like a mostly white thing, I used to think they were lazy, but then I realized, no, you're not lazy. You're working really hard to keep it white. So it started changing the way, and that's what we're most proud of. And book is just a byproduct of it. Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, Peter's wife, Jesse, actually worked with uh, artists to make books that they could give to uh, women in prison. And there had to be a certain way for it to be allowed to be, ha so it couldn't have staples, it, couldn't ha it had to be a certain size. So all these things, so she go, she, so she started creating all these books for them that could be shared within the prison, not just present outside it, but within it, without being taken away. Yeah, it was all written by them, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. May I ask, uh, many apparitions within your writing. I was wondering, what is uh, your relationship with uh, spiritualism? I've lived in like four haunted houses, basically. <laughs> um, my father's a retired minister, which, <laughs> it comes with all its problems. But he's also... Like, let's put it this way. When I was, my, my dad's favorite book that he used to read to me when I was three was this book of all the unexplained phenomena around the world. <laughs> so I'm like three years old. He would sit me on his lap and, you know, tell me about the pyramids and the Stonehenge and Bermuda Triangles. And then he would tell me of all the crazy stuff that happened during the filming of, like, The Exorcist. <laughs> so, um... That informed me quite a bit. And my mom is, she used to tell us, I love you guys, but if a spaceship came and said, get on, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so those were the two things that sort of, 
and you know, I I lived in Paraguay when I was little in South America, and it's it's like a lot of the spiritual like um, what we call paranormal and all those things were just accepted normal like day to day thing. So, yeah. Man, god damn, what makes a good poem? Um, first, I don't know. <laughs> but I think, because it's such a personal thing, um, and it changes like every day I read it. Like I remember growing up, I hated Emily Dickinson. But now I read it, and I just can't get enough of it. Um, and you know, it, it just—it just—it just changes. I think um, I don't know. I might not be able to say what good poetry, but is. But I can say right now it's like golden age of poetry, mm-hmm. and it's being led by queer poets by black poets by Latino poets by Asian poets it's just an amazing time and and there's like people who are like in their 20s and in their 30s who are writing like world class historical things and so I don't know what's good but that's good (laughs) (laughs) Hmm? yeah Um, I'm struck thanks again for the reading it's fantastic Um, the, the, the yellow house poems are um, uh, so intimate. Um, they're you know, these really intense lyric poems, and I'm struck by the fact that, as you said, you were writing those poems on Facebook, which I don't. Stri- this doesn't strike me as a very intimate space. It seems odd, odd, the opposite of an intimate space. It seems like a very kind of obviously social media social space. So I was wondering if you could talk more about the process of right, composing you know, the kind of days and day and kind of com- composition of those poems on right. Facebook and what that was like. Um. It's mostly like I don't think about it, but then there are times where I remember even going before that, like when I was reading from abductions. And those of us like who are writing about family or people who are we are in relationship with in one way or another, it like at readings people would sort of like approach my wife, be like are you okay with him reading this stuff to strangers? And it's a question I think about a lot. And um, and it becomes this bigger thing about like responsibility as a human being making art. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I don't worry so much about my fa- my parents because they don't read English, so I'm like fine. <laughs> and my and my older brother he just doesn't like to read, so that's fine too. But. That was a weird space. So Facebook became this thing where most of the time I'm, I don't think about it, but there are times where it becomes awkward for the people around me, like whether it's my wife or friends uh, that get sort of caught in the crossfire of it because people approach them as if they've no- discovered something about them. Um, another thing is like I was thinking about intimacy like with, friends um 
it's a different kind of intimacy where it's it's physical it's it's just being in the moment it's not about writing stories and sharing memories and it was this kind of a um yeah weird thing i mean i don't know why some of us feel super comfortable on social media and others don't um but it's been it's been a way for me to um like explore the work in a way that I can't do when I'm writing on paper. Like it's almost like I feel more responsible mm -hmm. to getting deeper because I'm presenting it publicly. Um, no, no, not at all. Like, I think it, it helped me, um, think less linearly actually. So I, I was, when I was writing, I felt more like I had to follow some linear, like, mm -hmm. like chronological linear thing where in Facebook I'm like I know this needs to be edited I'm literally posting this on Facebook I mean I could <laughs> I, mean, I can't write a whole book with my thumbs and expect it to be edited. <laughs> but yeah so it's been it's been actually I felt safer editing it than when I wasn't doing Uh, it got into a really bad place. Like, towards the end of writing it, um, I actually ended up adding a piece in here right before it went to print. Um, because right towards the end of finishing the book, like, I mean, I like to drink, but it got bad. Um, in bad in the way that I was getting, um, like, I was fighting with people. Like, so there's a piece in it where um, I ended up editing a piece where I had a fight where I grabbed my wife's arm, and I didn't realize until the next day when I saw the bruises what had happened. So, and it became this thing of um and then I went to therapy the whole thing whatever. Uh, but like it carried into the when I started reading from the book at readings like people kept saying is it cathartic and I was like no <laughs> it's actually the opposite um maybe it is to some people but I felt like this weird thing of reliving the, the trauma again and again. Um, yeah, and after a certain amount of reason, I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't read anymore, I couldn't write anymore. I was like, I'm done, I'm done with poetry. I'm, I can't do this anymore. And, and I, it's like the worst I felt about it because at some point, my wife stopped coming to the event. Like, I would, like, 
because it was just not not a positive thing for either of us. And it became this really messed up space for for me personally and for her. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know why we do it. <laughs> <laughs> like stepping back, I feel like okay, I at least at least try to address it. Like writing the book was some way of trying to get through it, but I don't know. It became a really um, it dipped into a pretty fucked up space. Yes. Um, probably. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard to say because, like, when I was growing up, I, I just, I still to this day don't understand what Asian American means, that term means. Like, I was a Asian American when I was in Paraguay. It was just that when you're in South America, no one, like, I don't understand what Mexican American means. I'm like, dude. They're, make, they're American, like, I don't understand. <laughs> but, like, I I know I know what makes me cringe is, like, when I'm sort of given a set of things that I'm supposed to have as an Asian American. Like, it's like, just talk to me. I'm a human being. Um, and I'll have my issues, not just because I'm Asian American, not because I'm Korean, but not because, not just because my dad's a pet minister and this and that and that, but just in dialogue, you know? Um, I don't know. I really don't know. Like, I don't know. I, I wouldn't know how to approach it. Other than just talk to them. <laughs> you did mention that you were from the UK, and I was wondering what your relationship with your religion is now, and how that influences the Um, the biggest thing that influences my writing about growing up in Christian family is that my parents made me read the Bible all the time. But one good thing was my dad. Just gave me, he gave me a set of like different color highlighter and said, every time you read through it, just with a different color, highlight whatever thing pops out to you for whatever reason. It doesn't have to be, ah, this means something. So it helped me sort of just look, look at it as, uh, incredibly like densely, you know, choreographed narrative with all these arcs here and there. And, um, you know, and like even I remember watching like Rashomon and thinking, "Hey, that's like that's like you know, the the four first books of the New Testament, it's like four versions of the same freaking thing." Um, things like that um, help. Secondary, this is not just being a PK, but um, just like I was saying earlier with my with the haunted houses and my mom's obsession with ghosts. I mean UFOs and all that. It just and growing up in Paraguay, it. 
all that stuff became norm for me. So I couldn't believe one thing as much as the other. Um, yeah, so that that's sort of helped. I mean, for me, it's been a huge, huge part of my life. Are you Korean? I'm Korean. Every freaking Korean kid is like, has. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, when I went to Korea, like, I remember the cab driver saying, Korea has pool halls and churches. That's all it has. <laughs> I'm like, hmm. Well, when the first haunted house I lived in was in Korea when I was a kid, and like, um, there was a woman who used to sit on the steps, and I, and like, I was like two, three years old. I would just stand there and cry because I would see this woman. I, my mom and my brother didn't know what was going on because they didn't see it. But my dad, when they just pulled me aside and said, "Do you see that woman too?" Right? So it became a norm. Um, and then, like, in Paraguay, like, you saw all the wild, like, churches and, you know, people possessed and all the. And I was a kid, and you would just watch it and go, oh, oh yeah, there was another possession, right? <laughs> <laughs> that kind of a thing. And so that all made life actually very exciting for me. It was like, there's something beyond whatever it is that I could touch and see. And it's, I'm still excited. Like every time, like every so often I'll, I'll go, oh, I haven't seen a ghost in a while. Oh, like, <laughs> I'll feel sad about it. Um, and then, you know, like whenever there's earthquakes, like if you see all these, if you read all this stuff, you'll see all these UFO sightings anywhere before there's a huge earthquake. There's like a weird thing that happens. Mm -hmm. Like a couple of days before a huge earthquake, there's a spike in UFO sighting. I'm not saying there is possible. I'm just saying it's like a weird phenomenon that happens with people. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Any more questions? Anything. <laughs> Well, one day, <laughs> Brandon is from, Pit he was in Pittsburgh also, but um, last year, or early this year, uh, I, I live part-time in Pittsburgh now, because my wife is there doing a PhD. Um, Ai Weiwei had two shows open at the same time. So he was, he, there was an Ai Weiwei event. So Judy and I went there like, a little early, and then we went to a, to eat something like nearby. We're in line, and people are staring. <laughs> I'm like, this is hilarious. Um, and they just stared at me through the whole meal. And then we're walking into the building, and people are like, "Oh, he's here!" Like they're starting to get. <laughs> um, and so it was all funny. And then there were uh, there were classmates, Judy's classmates, who were Chinese, and she was like, couldn't stop laughing. She's like, oh my god, I'm gonna just 
Can we take a photo? I just want to send it to my friends and tell them I was with Wei. So that was funny. But then I was sitting. Um, there were a couple of empty seats next to me. And these fucking dudes, who, these three white dudes walk in and just from far away just start doing their whole ching chong thing in relation to Ai Weiwei. I'm like, first of all, <laughs> you just came to Ai Weiwei event. And if you mistake me for it, why are you doing a ching chong thing? <laughs> and, you know, like, every time something like that happens, my wife just starts tensing up, like she, trying to calm me down. So yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> Questions? Thank you so much. Can we get another round? I have a few copies of the Yellow House and a couple of copies of Abductions if you guys are interested in purchasing it. Um, and yeah.